Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week... Lars Eyer on his latest novel, Nietzsche and the Burbs. Lars Eyer is the author of a number of non-fiction books, as well as the novels Wittgenstein Jr., and the trilogy Spurious, Dogma and Exodus, which very, very long-term listeners might remember we talked about on Little Atoms a long time ago. His latest novel, Nietzsche and the Burbs, we're going to be talking about today. Lars, welcome back to Little Atoms. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. So how would you describe this novel? This novel is an apocalyptic novel about teenagers living in contemporary Britain. So it's an apocalyptic novel. It's all about climate change and and financial disaster and the effects that these might have on the young. But it's also about a reincarnated version of the great philosopher Nietzsche. Nietzsche, of course, is is a famous 19th century philosopher. But what I thought I'd do in this novel is have him reborn into the 20th century, have him reborn into the suburbs of, well, I suppose the suburbs of Wokingham and Reading, which are on the Thames Valley Corridor, about 30 miles west of London. Does this book bear any relation to um, Wittgenstein Jr.? Well, I think of um, this book as being the second part of a trilogy. And all three books are set in, set in contemporary times, and they feature a, a reincarnated um, philosopher. So Wittgenstein Jr., Wittgenstein is somehow born again and finds himself in contemporary Cambridge University. In this novel, Nietzsche finds himself in the Thames Valley along the M4 um, in some mediocre estate. In the third novel, which I'm writing at the moment, the great philosopher Simone Weil finds herself reborn in uh, contemporary Manchester as a, as a PhD student. So that's the idea behind these three novels. They're a kind of cycle. They don't have um, overlapping characters or plots or anything like this, but the same kind of story is being told in each one. So let's talk about why, as a teenager then, what's the sort of the unique milieu of of teenage life that makes um, them appropriate for a reincarnated Nietzsche? Well, teens, since Nietzsche, really, since Nietzsche's death, have, 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 have had a fascination with Nietzsche's work. And one of the reasons for this is because Nietzsche's philosophy can allow us to understand this, what Nietzsche calls nihilism, this sense in which things don't mean anything, things don't seem to have any importance or any ground. And what's wonderful about teenagers is they can see through adult imposture, 
adult lies. They're impatient with all the ways in which we try to reconcile ourselves with the powers that be. And teenagers are drawn to Nietzsche, just like my teens in, in my work of fiction are drawn to the reincarnated Nietzsche. They're drawn to Nietzsche because Nietzsche allows them to express both the sense that things don't mean anything, but also allows them to seek a source of meaning, to find something that will transvalue their lives and lift it up into meaning and purpose and significance. And I guess on a on a sort of wider level, I mean, you do academic work on European philosophy as well, but your novels are all very funny. What makes European philosophy a, a, a suitable subject for comedy in your eyes? I suppose because European philosophy has been received in a very curious way in this country, often with a great deal of hostility. I worked in philosophy for many years, probably about 20 years, and you'd be amazed at the hostility, even the racism that you'd find among philosophers in the UK to philosophers from the continent. And one of the things that made me feel, as a, as a philosopher interested in European thought, is something of a buffoon, something of, a, something of an idiot. And I suppose that's a sort of internalised self-dislike or self-suspicion, something of that sort. And indeed, I think it marks many of us who worked in the area of European philosophy or still work there. It's this kind of humour which comes from a sense that you shouldn't be really reading this stuff. This stuff is not proper British stuff. It's not proper analytic philosophy. So the title, Nietzsche and the Burbs, both refers to a band that the group of teenagers um, who we'll, we'll come to in a moment, we'll look at some of the characters, but they form a band called Nietzsche and the Burbs. Um, but of course, the story is also about the reincarnated Nietzsche, literally in the Burbs, in the suburbs. Um, tell us something about the settings. You mentioned that it's 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 Wokingham and obviously Reading features as well, but this area of the sort of dormitory suburbs of London as a setting for this book, tell me why. Well... This is a part of England where, where I grew up. I spent most of my years growing up in, uh, in the town of Wokingham. We moved out from London. We moved out from Southall in the west of London. And moving to Wokingham was a real shock for me. Because moving there, you're moving to a much more affluent place. You're moving to a place which is very solidly middle class, where children judge you on what you wear and the kinds of, even the kinds of socks that you wear. And that coming from, from Southall was absolutely amazing to me. Wokingham is a very, very middle class place. The centre of town is very prosperous. But as you leave the town centre, what you get instead are these just endless, endless housing estates. And in fact, Woking was one of the fastest growing parts of England in the 80s and 90s. Housing estate after housing estate after housing estate sprang up all over the place. And what characterises Woking, well, it's a, it's a safe Tory seat. It has been for, for decades it's prosperous. There's a lot of wealth there. Um, a lot of the great, the big companies of our time have, have their headquarters there or have major branches there. There's, I saw recently, there's pretty much full employment in Wokingham. I mean, there's jobs for the taking. So growing up there, the feeling was that you'd, you know, go to university, go off and study, then come back and get a job in one of the IT companies or something related to IT. There's a whole life waiting for you there. But for my friends and I growing up in Wokingham, the place filled us with, with despair. We didn't really know why. We didn't really know what it was. We weren't poor. We were living in decent enough places and in a pleasant green area. But there seemed to be an absence of meaning, an absence of, of life, an absence of intensity. And it's something we only really got a sense of as we came into contact with other people from other places. 
it was really moving to working class parts of uh, of Bratnell pubs in in Bratnell where people actually had fun, had a laugh in an open and overt way. It was going to university. One friend of mine went off to the University of Sussex. I went up to the University of Manchester. And both of us came into contact in different ways with a lively scene and fun and and laughter and and music and uh, going out. And this seemed a world away from dreary old Wokingham, from the Thames Valley. Um, Let's talk about Chandra, who's the narrator of the story, who is he? Chandra is a second-generation Indian. I, I am too. Uh, well, I'm half Indian. So Chandra allows me to think about some of the aspects of of Indian um, culture, of uh, people who've, who've settled over, people whose parents settled over in England, and how they how they fit in or don't fit in to contemporary society. So Chandra is someone in in the novel, like all my characters in this novel, all the major characters, he has what you might call, what Nietzsche, the historical Nietzsche would call, a will to nothingness, a drive to self-extinction, a drive to to death. Chandra's particularly fascinated with death, with dying. And in my presentation of Chandra as a character, I draw on Hindu mythology and Hindu religion. In particular, Chandra identifies with the figure of Shiva, the god of death, I suppose, the god of destruction, the god who covers himself in ashes, the god who meditates, the god who smokes uh, marijuana, the god of the sadhus, the people who reject society in India and wander through the mountains begging for alms. So that's who Chandra identifies with. And he also finds, you know, the, the prospect of, of self-annihilation in the manner of Kurt Cobain um, very attractive, the manner of self-annihilation that you find in, in the young Rambeau. So Chandra is someone who's drawn to death, drawn to various forms of, of religiosity, which we don't really find in the West. He wants to revive practices of sacrifice that even in India disappeared about 3,000 years ago. So that's the Chandra of my novel. He's someone who wants to re-mythologize the world. He wants to um, instigate a death of God religion and discover through that a missing intensity to the life in the suburbs. And at the beginning of the novel, he's, he's friends with a, a group of people, Art, Paula, Merv. Tell us something about the rest of the group. Yeah, all of them, you see, are characterised by some kind of death drive, some kind of hatred, something which they have to, in the novel, overcome in some way. So Art is someone who hates his own body. And it's really important to me to capture this. What I cannot stand in most teen fiction and most things about teens on television is that dreadful idea of teens being out of control sexually, teens being full of these desires that they can't quite... um, can't quite conquer um, that they're, they're, they're drawn sexually all over the place and for me art is someone for whom this is repugnant for whom this is absolutely quite dreadful he feels a repugnant towards sexuality towards the body he's an ascetic in that sense he's someone who embodies um, an asceticism driven away from the body driven vaguely into a form of buddhism he's, he's interested in christianity as well in some sense and he's interested in the arts so that's, where, that's, what, that's what drives him. He wants to move away from the body, away from desires, into, in some sense, the arts. Another character, Paula. Paula's someone who hates the suburbs. She's a lesbian. She doesn't fit in. She doesn't, what, what she doesn't like is not the fact that she's excluded from society. It's the fact that she's included all too readily. The teachers at school want to recruit her as a kind of figurehead for lesbianism. They want her to be some kind of exemplar to her fellow pupils. And that's a role which she can't stand. 
So she's driven towards a hatred of the suburbs, hatred towards her parents and the hypocrisy which for her they embody. Paula hates being patronised. She hates being pigeonholed. And all she's doing is hoping that somehow she'll escape to Manchester where she's going to study at university. My character Merv. Merv is a, <laughs> an unusual sort of fellow. The, um, I, I present him in the novel as the last working class person in Wokingham. Wokingham is tremendously middle class. But Merv is, is, is the last working class um, person. Um, his father, um, when he worked, did manual work. And it recalls to me the way in which, you know, middle class Wokingham was extraordinarily prejudiced against working class people. You know, it was probably very, very striking when I was growing up. They were very racist in Wokingham, particularly anti-Semitic. They could not stand the working classes, and they were snobs. So Merv is someone who, I suppose, feels this snobbery in some way. Once upon a time, he was a nerd, but he's been rescued from his nerd and by his bunch of friends. He's been pulled out of the, of the computer room. He's someone who, at the beginning of the novel, is very shy and retiring, but he undergoes a religious transformation, a spiritual transformation, and he becomes rather like a character from Dostoevsky. He reads the book The Idiot, which is pretty much the first book he's ever read in his life. So he reads Dostoevsky's great novel and drawing inspiration from it, he becomes very spiritual, rather like Father Zosima in Brothers Karamazov. He's someone who's capable of uttering profundities. So Merv really are transformed through the novel, as all my characters do, because they're all moving away from the will to nothingness to some kind of affirmation. In art, it's the affirmation through music. In Paula, eventually, it's the affirmation of love. In Merv, it's the affirmation of a general spirituality. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. You're listening to Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Lars Eyer, and we're talking about his latest novel, Nietzsche and the Burbs. And so Lars will come on to Nietzsche or Nietzsche's embodiment in a teenage boy at the school. At the beginning of the novel, he turns up from a private school, joins a school and and becomes friends with, with this group, this group of four. Tell us how you've embodied Nietzsche in the body of a teenage boy in the novel. Well, Nietzsche is someone I wanted to capture as a sort of aristocratic fellow, someone who's at a remove from the comprehensive school in which he finds himself at the beginning of the novel. So Nietzsche is someone who has real scorn for people around him and a real hatred of the suburbs. He's from a fee-paying school. It's called Trafalgar College in, in my novel. Now, crucially here, Nietzsche is not someone from wealth. His father was a teacher at the school, and his father is someone that Nietzsche, my character Nietzsche, describes as a mystic. The father has died and the family have to move away from the school. They've lost their grace and favour home. They've lost Nietzsche's scholarship. And Nietzsche himself has been ill for a couple of years, mentally ill. And Nietzsche then has to go to the local comprehensive to finish off his sixth form studies. So he's about 17, 18, probably a bit older than that, actually, maybe 19 or 20 by the time the novel begins. He says he's two years out. And in his time in the suburbs, he's had a a kind of, um, what would you call it, a vision of some kind. He's had an experience of the suburbs, which is very profound. The idea for Nietzsche is the suburbs are the place in which nihilism has actually become incarnate in everyday existence. Nihilism, for the first time in human history, is everywhere. It's the very way in which people live. So my character Nietzsche thinks of the historical Nietzsche as a prophet of what my character Nietzsche finds around him in contemporary Wokingham, in the suburbs. And what Nietzsche finds around him in Wokingham is a mediocre form of life, life turned upon life. But even as he finds this, Nietzsche also thinks that that life in Wokingham, that life in the suburbs is a kind of test. If you undergo this test, if you're able to live in Wokingham and ask that you live nowhere other than in Wokingham, if you're able to consider that your life might only ever be in Wokingham and doing Wokingham things with Wokingham people, if you can stand that thought, then maybe you can break the hold of nihilism. And in this, my character Nietzsche parallels what the historical Nietzsche called eternal recurrence or the eternal return, the attempt to will everything that happens to you and everything that happens around you to will it as though it's exactly what you wanted, exactly what you would have affirmed in the first place. And through this trick, my character Nietzsche wants to transfigure the meaning of the suburbs to actually make it a meaningful life to live in the suburbs. It's rather an improbable project, but no less improbable than the one the historical Nietzsche sought to realise in his own life 
and in his own philosophy. I want to talk about a, a couple of other writers that feature in the story and and talk about you know what their what their sort of role is in it. And I guess you you've already mentioned Dostoevsky and that you know that Merv becomes you know consumed by the idiot. But tell us something more about Dostoevsky in this story. Yeah, Dostoevsky for me embodies a a Christianity which I don't really find in Western Christianity. For me, it's a distinctly Orthodox form of Christianity which. I suppose in many ways, I suppose it does resemble Francis of Assisi, that sort of Christianity. A Christianity which um, looks to the natural world, looks to animals and birds and looks to plants and flowers and finds in them some evidence of, of I suppose, grace or, or the divine, something of that kind. It's almost a pantheistic um, Christianity. At least that's how I understand it in Dostoevsky. And what I was thinking of in Dostoevsky's work was the character The Idiot, and the idea for Dostoevsky is, in his novel The Idiot, he was going to embody a pure human being, someone, someone Christ-like, someone, someone who's a kind of messiah. What's fascinating about Dostoevsky is that he doesn't allow this idiot his redemptive role. He's not simply a reborn Jesus. Because whenever the idiot of, uh, of Dostoevsky's novel, and his name in the novel is Prince Mishkin, Whenever Prince Mishkin, the idiot of the novel, whenever he comes into a new situation, things seem to go wrong. Things seem to fall apart. His very presence destabilizes the world. And far from redeeming the world, the idiot leads to a double murder and to the insanity of the idiot. He goes back to live in a, in a mental institution. That's the wonder of Dostoevsky. He both presents a very appealing and attractive Christianity, but also shows that this form of Christianity is something which really can't survive in the world as it is. And that's one of the reasons I've always been drawn to that peculiar novel. It's a very uneven novel. It's really up and down. Some parts of it are just rotten and boring and dreary. But the first and the last books of it, the first and last parts of the novel, are absolutely mesmerising. So that's Dostoevsky in the novel, in my novel. And I remember years ago when we talked about your previous trilogy, we talked about the influence of Samuel Beckett on those books. And Beckett features in this novel as well. So can you talk about your Beckett in this novel? Yeah, I've forgotten about that, of course, yes. Beckett in the novel, well, you know, when I was growing up, I found Reading University Library a wonderful retreat. At that time, you could just wander into it. And many of the great authors who I came into contact with, I first met them in, um, I first read their books, in Reading University Library, so I owe that library a great deal. One of the things that's striking about Reading University Library is it has great holdings of Beckett's work, and that was because one of the great Beckett scholars lived in Reading, or sorry, worked in Reading anyway. Beckett himself was selling his manuscripts directly to Reading. I always thought that was quite incredible. The university was a wonderful resource for me, but Reading is a, a nondescript, uninteresting sort of place, is part of a rather nondescript and uninteresting um, suburban sprawl. So it seemed to me, well, growing up, the most unlikely place to find Beckett's manuscripts you could possibly find. And my characters in the novel think exactly the same thing. Indeed, for them, Beckett's manuscripts being in Reading, being in the Reading University Library, is rather like antimatter being in contact with matter. They fear some enormous explosion is going to happen, some black hole is going to open and suck everything into it. So that is what the characters make of, of Beckett. Beckett is the very opposite of Wokingham, of Reading, of the Thames Valley, just as antimatter is supposed to be the opposite of matter. To finish this off, can I get you to read us a bit of Nietzsche and the Burps? Certainly. This is a passage 
in which the characters are embarked on uh, suburban researches. They've taken Nietzsche to uh, one of the suburbs, one of the biggest suburbs, um, one of the big housing estates in the Wokingham area, called Lower Early, on our bikes, on our suburban researches. Lower Early starts quietly, we tell Nietzsche. There's no dual carriageway here, not on this side of the estate. No vast roundabout of pedestrian underpasses like at Woos Hill, not here. Quiet entrances with mini roundabouts. Quiet entrances, dozens of them, with a mini roundabout each. There are many ways into the labyrinth. Lower Early is the subtlest of the local estates, we tell Nietzsche. The horror of Lower Early creeps up on you. It's stealthy, cumulative. It takes time to gather momentum. You hardly notice it at first. It isn't even strongly marked off as an estate. It's only gradually that you recognise the horizontal rhythms. It's only gradually that the houses come to seem more uniform, more identicate. And by that point, it's too late. By that point, you're screaming inside. That's why you should never walk into Lower Early, we tell Nietzsche. Don't risk it. You need wheels in Lower Early. You need to be able to get out and quickly press the equivalent of a panic button, the eject button. At first, it doesn't look so bad, Lower Early, we tell Nietzsche. The essential nature of Lower Early is hidden. There are mature trees here. The houses aren't crammed up to the edge of the road. There are front gardens, small ones, it's true, but gardens nonetheless. And there are fenced-off back gardens. And there's money here, we tell Nietzsche. Lower Early is not a cheap place to live. Actually, it's one of the most expensive places to live in the country. You'll barely find a more expensive place to live outside London. And all the while you're pondering Lower Early, you're being drawn deeper into Lower Early, we tell Nietzsche. All the time you're contemplating Lower Early, you're becoming mired in Lower Early, lost in Lower Early. And the essence of Lower Early is revealed only when you are lost, profoundly lost, in the depths of Lower Early. Only then do you come to know what Lower Early is. This is the most anonymous estate that has ever existed. The most neutral estate that has ever existed. The scale of it, the largest private estate in Europe, the sheer size of it, there's probably nothing to rival it in the world. And there's nothing haphazard about it, nothing left to chance. It's been carefully planned and maintained, meticulously crafted, as though it were part of some government initiative, as though there were deliberate experiment in low-meaning living. There's still life here, that's true. There are parts with children playing. Amazing, the tenacity of life. Amazing, life adaptability. It's like the strange life five miles down in the ocean. But what kind of life is this after all, this life in the depths of Lower Early? People survive, people go on, the years pass, but what happens here? Slow, very slow, nervous breakdowns, that's what. The slow, very slow build up a poison in infinitesimal doses. A lifelong poisoning, a lifelong strangling, a lifelong murder. It takes a lifetime to die in Lower Early. You die of the suburbs, you know, although you think you die of cancer or of heart disease. You're given your death sentence by the suburbs, even though you think it's breast cancer or brain cancer or arteriosclerosis. The suburbs seep into you, drip into you. It's subtle. You don't really notice it. You think to yourself, it won't touch me. It won't get to me. But by the time you realise it's too late, it's happened. It's reached your lymph nodes. It's reached your bones. You're a terminal case, but it will take a lifetime to finally die. 
So I've been talking to Lars Iyer, who's been talking about his latest book, Nietzsche and the Burbs, which is out now in the UK from Melville House. Lars, thank you so much for taking the time to tell me about it. Thanks very much for having me on the show. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.